0: I am delighted in this hour to have a career conversation with Emmy-winning journalist and documentarian Soledad O'Brien, as promised, about her latest piece on affirmative action and her ongoing work shedding light on untold stories and challenging societal norms through compelling storytelling. Uh, Soledad's name has come up two or three times already uh, in the show today, in part because in our first hour, (laughs) my regular contributor, Ruben Navarrete Jr., whose politics ain't my politics, but we've been friends for 30-plus years and love to argue about things. He and Dad were in the same class at Harvard. And then we talked about Bill Ackman earlier today. He was at Harvard around the same time that Soledad was there. Uh, and uh, we talked about presidential politics, and I mentioned to you that Soledad and I, some years ago, moderated a presidential forum together in Iowa. Uh, the Iowa caucuses are on Monday, uh, uh, kicking off the uh, season in earnest to elect the president in November. So her name has uh, popped up a few times already on this program. She should know. And so now she's actually here in person. Before we commence our conversation with Soledad for the hour, take a uh, listen to uh, a piece uh, from her new work, and uh, we'll let her tell us about it when we come forward.
1: I think there are people who would say, so affirmative action is a way for people of color who are not qualified to get into jobs or maybe schools.
0: Even during the trials, there was zero
2: evidence that any of those students should not have gotten in on their own talents.
1: Until 1976, the numbers of students of color in colleges were so low, the U.S. government didn't even count them. Today, schools are more diverse, but numbers are still low at the top colleges, the ones that admit less than 25% of their applicants, and produce a quarter of the U.S. Senate, three-fourths of the Supreme Court justices, and the majority of the nation's Fortune 500 CEOs. Even with affirmative action in play, just 7% of students at top colleges are Black, even though twice that many, 14%, are of college age. 15% are Latino, even though their college age population is 23.4%, the fastest growing youth demographic in the US. McKinsey research on nonprofit colleges found that even with affirmative action, it would take almost 70 years for these institutions' student bodies to reflect the demographics of the US population in terms of the number of historically underrepresented students in each class. We have so much history behind us as people of color, so much history,
2: like such a strong past. So why would we be put at the same level as somebody whose family has been here for for centuries and have benefited off of the, the harm done to communities of color?
0: So, Dad O'Brien, my first time talking to you in the New Year, so Happy New Year to you. How have you been?
2: Hey, thank you. Likewise. Happy New Year to you. I've been really, really well. How about you?
0: I can't complain. Uh, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well,
2: <laughs> and I'm um,
0: always <laughs> delighted to be uh, in conversation with you. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, you've you. had quite the career. We're going to have a career conversation in this hour about all the stuff you have done and are doing, but I want to start, obviously, with this new piece. Uh, tell me about this affirmative action work you've done.
2: Yeah, we were really interested in exploring the kind of, you know, well, what now? The thing I think is so interesting, and you've actually covered this for many years, um, there's so many mythologies, right, around mm-hmm. affirmative action, around minorities in general, but around affirmative action. Affirmative action is, is wildly successful, so successful that black students are overtaking and students of color gener- generally are overtaking White students who just struggle to get into school, right? That's just (laughs) not true. But, but if you were to like, you know, run down the street and ask random people, I think there's all this mythology around, you know, this idea of like replacement. And, and so we were very interested uh, in sort of tackling some of this mythology, but also really saying, okay, now that the Supreme Court has basically killed affirmative action, Mm -hmm. what now? What does it mean for students? We were able to talk to students who in some ways were very interesting because they, they sat in this dividing line. The older sister had applied and gotten into college under affirmative action. And then when the younger sister was applying, affirmative action was now dead. And so what were her challenges, what were her strategies, and what happened to her was kind of one of the groups of students that we talked to. And also talking to people who are trying to figure out, okay, how do you then assist students in an environment where – there is very clearly an attack, not just on affirmative action. It's really the start, I would say, and I, I think there's a ton of evidence for saying, on DEI generally, right? This idea of just a, a, an out-and-out out attack on diversity. So affirmative action in many ways, uh, with Edward Bloom at the, the helm, is just the start of trying to kill DEI and diversity initiatives that have benefited people who have historically uh, been left behind for lots of reasons. Um, and so I think we're at the beginning of that as well. So that's what we wanted to explore in this in this documentary.
0: Yeah, um, it's a great piece of work, and I'm glad you did it. Um, let me let me let me let me let me start by asking what you discovered. Well, let me do this. do that. I'm looking at my clock here. Let me let me let me frame this, and we'll we'll give you a chance to respond when we come forward here, Soledad. What I want to ask in a moment is what you what did, what did you discover in your in your work in your research for this documentary that has allowed this mythology, as you put it, about affirmative action, not just to uh, be sustained, but to succeed, succeed so well, the Supreme Court buys this argument and guts affirmative action. What's been driving, uh, what's been allowing for creating the the, the terrain that could uh, allow this mythology to grow uh, and to grow uh, so wildly that we ultimately end up uh, just doing away with it, just chopping it down altogether. That's our question for SoDad O'Brien. That and more when we come forward on Tavis Smiley interrogating and unpacking.
2: That's what we do around here.
0: You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Soledad O'Brien has a powerful documentary out about uh, affirmative action. Soledad, when, where, and how can people see the doc?
2: The doc is uh, streaming on CBS.com. And actually, I think a really good way uh, to check it out is to... um, to go to the CBS News app or PowerMan Plus as well are very good uh opportunities to check it out. And it's a short doc. It's a minute doc. Uh most of my docs are what we call T V hours. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a really uh full of just lots of information and lots of, of lots of context.
0: So 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 what has what has um allowed this mythology um to not just be sustained over many, many years. Uh I was just talking to one of our guests earlier today Uh, Going back to Abigail Fisher, you recall, University of Texas Mm -hmm. um, and all the ways in which we were talking uh, in the prior hour about the ways in which they started at that time using King's words, Dr. King's words (laughs) to to uh, to make their own case that he'd be uh, opposed to corrective programs like a front of action because he wanted folk to be judged by the color of their, by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, all that nonsense. We spent an hour sort of talking about the way in which the right, political right, is using King's words to make the, their own points, their own claims toward their own ends and aims. That was last hour. So here we are now talking to you specifically about affirmative action in this particular hour. And I'm curious, as again, as to what you've learned about the ways in which uh, this mythology has been allowed, not just to be sustained, but to succeed to the point where the Supreme Court has now, to your point, killed
2: it. Yeah, I think there's uh four answers to that. And okay. some of them come off the conversation in the last hour, right? Which is people want to believe these things that just aren't true. Uh, there are plenty of Americans, we see this uh, in polls all the time, who believe that white Americans are actually more the victims of racism than black Americans. And I think, and people who believe that reverse racism is actually a thing. And so I think playing into that, playing into Dr. King's words, character, not skin color, even as you twist it uh, and really don't understand anything about the man at all, (laughs) right, is a very convincing uh, argument for some people. Number two, I think there's this sense uh, of selling something that actually hasn't worked. Affirmative action really has not worked very well. And you you started your your entire uh, third hour by talking about how you know, uh, if you it's moving so slowly that to actually get to parity would take a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So there's this mythology that people want to embrace that not only is it working, it's working super, super well. It's actually not really been working. If anything, it's working very, 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 very slowly. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's this idea of, well, racism is dead. And certainly for middle class black Americans, racism is really, it just doesn't exist. And I think the Supreme Court has tried to, Uh, underscore that many times there are many examples of that and it's just not true there's tons of evidence that shows whether it's in selling your house or getting access to jobs or getting whatever you long list you've covered this on your show all the time that their racism does is alive and very much well here in the united states Mm -hmm. so i think those are some of the reasons and i think overall really you have this um idea that people Really don't like affirmative action in the package of people of color. If it's in the package of legacies, well, my daddy built the library at the mm-hmm. school, or it's in the package of, well, I'm a really good athlete. I deserve to get access because of this thing, then people are much, you know, uh, much more comfortable with it. They don't even think of it as affirmative action, right? They actually don't even call that affirmative action when in fact it is affirmative action. And so I always ask people, like, why are you, why does it make you so uncomfortable on this piece of it? But over here, when it's legacies getting access, you actually don't have a problem with that at all. And, and often I think people struggle to answer that. So I think those are the many reasons why, you know, this, this challenge uh, and this mythology is so easily embraced.
0: Um, to your point, people struggle to answer that latter part about the legacies. Uh, what's the best answer? I'm putting best in air quotes. What's the best retort you've heard to that question?
2: Um, you know, I think sometimes people will say, well, sports is something that, you know, is a skill that you're bringing. And if your dad builds a library, well, then he's adding value. So that's a good thing. I mean, it usually peters off into a very messy conversation <laughs> because I don't think there really is a reason. One of the things we found in the doc, Travis, which I think was really disturbing for people, was to understand that students from the richest 1% of American families – are twice as likely to attend the nation's most elite private colleges. And people would say, okay, that makes sense. You know, they've gone to good schools. They've gotten good grades. They are just better qualified. And you say, oh, no, no, no. No, even if their grades are the same as middle-class students, even if their grades are worse than middle-class students, they are more likely to attend. And there's a host of reasons for that. We know, for example, 40% of students now are admitted uh, early decision. Mm. Well, er, and, and I have two boys who are uh, going through the college process right now, which mm. is its own little circle of hell, let me tell you. <laughs> but what you when you decide to do early decision, you say, no matter what it costs, I'm going to go there. Well, yeah. there's only certain people who can agree to do that. So we know that there are a host of reasons why Those experiences exist. And for some reason, people are just not uncomfortable and don't see that as particularly unfair. But at the end of the day, and you mentioned this coming into this conversation, people will take a really interesting argument and twist it and spin it. And this is all the start of a conservative effort, a conservative movement to eliminate race based programs that encourage diversity. It is an effort to stomp out diversity, period, Full
0: stop. I want to ask you about that in a second. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm thinking uh, uh, of your comment about your two boys and the two thoughts come to mind. One, uh, I've seen those two boys behind the scenes help you on the work that you do uh, running your <laughs> company. So you, you're about to lose two employees, number one. It <laughs> sounds like that. And, and, and number two, I'm pushing you to the top of my prayer list with two kids going through the college <laughs> process at one time. Uh, so, th- so, so, so there's that. Um, that said, uh, that said, um, Tell me more about the way in which you see it. I'm glad you put your finger on this uh, a couple times now. Um tell about the ways in which you see this attack on affirmative action. As a means to an end to destroy anything that has race connected to it, as a means to an end to destroy anything diversity, equity, inclusion related, um, it is. This this is this is strategic, or as George Bush might say, there's some strategery involved here. So, so lots of me, yeah, lots of strategery. Lots and uh, lots. Tell me about the strategery that you see involved in this attack. Yeah,
2: absolutely, and well, you can tell there's lots of strategery because, in fact, we have seen. Uh, Pretty much right after the Supreme Court decision, uh, a letter was sent out right to law firms telling uh, those law firms to advise their clients, hang on to your documents about your programs, your Mm -hmm. diversity programs, the law firms themselves and the clients of the law firms, and I'm not a lawyer, but boy, do I know if anybody ever tells you, hey, hold on to those documents.
1: Mm -hmm. It's
2: generally an indication that you can expect there's going to be some kind of legal fight to come. And so it's obviously extremely, extremely intentional about uh, the strategy there. And, of course, we've already seen... In many states, you've got uh, efforts to kill DEI. I'm currently in the state of Florida, and we've already seen efforts to remove the history of African Americans from public school curriculum and book banning. You know, these are all... Might feel like these individual pieces, but in fact, they're not individual pieces of a, of a strategy. It's a really well honed and very long strategy. Edward Bloom has been at this for a long time. Yeah. He's not a guy who just suddenly two years ago decided, hey, I should bring this before the Supreme Court. This has been very, very intentional. And in a lot of ways, I think even uh, the arguments, you know, and, and the arguments are, are laid out very clearly. You know, one thing that I think conservatives are, are doing. Um, they're very clear about, uh, you know, if you look at Claudine Gay as a good example, I sure. mean, people say, you know, they play out, here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Here is our plan. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not some top secret thing that I, I can tell you that I have discovered by deep research. Mm-hmm. You know, People say it in interviews, here's what the plan is. And so, you know, I can tell you that Bill Ackman right now is trying to get himself elected uh, and a slate to the Harvard Board of Overseers, I know, because he's been reaching out with other people that I know, Uh, asking some people to join that slate so that they can take over the Harvard Board of Overseers. I don't know if anybody knows that officially, but I can Mm -hmm. promise you that that is accurate. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising, right? Um, It's a very intentional strategy. And I think when you approach these things with an intentional strategy, fearless fund, you've talked about that, Mm -hmm. you know, with an attack on fearless fund and other DEI programs, other uh, diversity programs across the board, you know, they're not just one off. And you have to understand that a lot of these universities and colleges right now are absolutely um, I mean, panicking is probably too strong, but are very, very stressed and very aware about the position that they are in. They fully understand uh, that they're in a position um where they're a defensive position. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the best way to put it. They're in a defensive position right now. And so, you know, they don't actually have to say why they've admitted students. Our, our, our producing partner in this documentary, the Heckinger Report, reached out to 40 of the most selective colleges and said, tell us the race of the students you admitted. Tell us the race of the students who applied. 40 uh, of, of those 40, only uh, fewer than half actually answered. And of the half that even responded, they actually didn't answer with any information. Mm -hmm. They just responded because they don't want to and they don't really necessarily see it as an upside. The Harvard dean of admissions has has said, you know, to the the Harvard Crimson, uh, admissions officers aren't even going to have access to data on race. Why? They're trying to position themselves legally. Uh, in a particular way
0: yeah um you've you've uh, described quite uh, quite brilliantly and quite accurately the political playbook uh, uh, that we see um, uh, rolling out in front of our eyes. Uh, we see the frame uh, that we are in when it comes to conservatives uh, and anything uh, that has race attached to it. um you mentioned you're in Florida, which makes uh, makes me want to ask um your view of how you see Uh, Not just their playbook writ large, um, but how you see in this presidential race, uh, given that you are in Florida, home of Ron DeSantis, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see this whole notion of racial preference? You can't see me. I'm using air quotes right now, but racial preference programs uh, in air quotes. How do you see that playing itself out on the on the stump this year, given that we expect that Donald Trump is the presumptive uh, Republican nominee?
2: Yeah, you know, I think you see a lot of the candidates kind of circle around it, right? They want to, uh, there was a a great quote that actually Charles Blow highlighted from Nikki Haley in one of the debates, right, mm-hmm. where she basically sort of highlights black women, right, mm-hmm. and 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 kind of undercuts them and undermines them. And I think you're going to see that consistently. People understand, uh, you know, and I, I think I've always hated when media calls this culture wars, because mm-hmm. often it's. It's not, a, you know, culture war almost makes it sound like I like strawberry ice cream. You like chocolate ice cream. We just don't we just don't agree on this mm-hmm. when actually you're talking about things that are very serious and historically relevant and uh, and factually uh, are something we should dig into. They're not just these culture wars where people just don't see eye to eye. Um, we're not going to debate people's ability to be considered human beings. Right. I mean, I, but but that sometimes is considered a, a culture war. So I I think you're going to see it really insert itself, because I think it is definitely an issue, one that the press will run after, Mm. very much so, uh, and give a lot of time to and even elevate those people. There was a time back in the day, and I'm dating myself, when if you were if you spoke like you were a member of the KKK or you were, in fact, a member of the KKK, Mm -hmm. you might not get a ton of airtime or at least there'd be an editorial meeting discussing like how do we actually report on this person without just giving them an open mic Mm -hmm. and i think the 2016 election was a really good example of reporters not having a freaking clue Mm -hmm. as to how to strategize and figure out you know how do you how do you How do you manage someone who just speaks in mistruths and 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 out-and-out fabrications and misinformation and disinformation? And and I I can't say that uh, reporters really learn. So it's definitely going to show up in the election for sure. Um, and I think we're going to be even more shocked uh, just because I have found every year more and more shocking.
0: Yeah. Let me, give, let me ask you this question with two minutes to go uh, in uh, this moment. And we'll, when we come forward, I uh, have some other stuff I want to talk to you about. But I want to just put a, a nice little bow on this if I can. Um, with regard to affirmative action in higher education, let me ask that Kingian question. Where do we go from here?
2: Mm, it's a great question. I don't think we're going to really know because no one is now required to track this data. The, the students that we profile in our documentary, right? There's no clear indication of why they got in or why they didn't get into school. And as you know, applying to colleges essays and extracurriculars and grades and recommendations, right? It's this complicated mess. So it is often very, very hard. And it, these selective colleges and all colleges actually don't really have a requirement now to tell the public. And I think because of that, it's going to just be very complicated. But I do think it's clear we're at a beginning of efforts to really turn back progress and really undermine diversity in this country. And I think a lot of people are asleep at the wheel if they believe it's not intentional, it's not coordinated, it's not organized, and it's not going to uh, cost a lot of money that a lot of people are very willing to fund.
0: So that's the part um, that I wanted to start with uh, about her powerful documentary about affirmative action. When we come forward, as I promised, uh, a career conversation, uh, Soledad has uh, has been uh, uh, quite diligent and, and uh, quite fortunate uh, and quite intentional about crafting what I would consider and call an enviable career. I don't know too many uh, people of color who would not uh, want to have had the career that Soledad has and is continuing to, uh, to, to grow uh, with her own production company, Soledad Productions. has a lot to talk to this sister about uh, with regard to her career. And I've got some questions for her in that regard. Brace yourself, Soledad, just teasing. More of Soledad O'Brien when we come forward on Tavis Smile. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like
2: freedom.
0: Sounds oh, different. different, huh? This this is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley with Soledad O'Brien. And um, Soledad knows how this works. She's done it for years. There's some breaking news here that I want to uh, have to share with you right quick. And I want to get Soledad's take on and then we'll continue talking about the fine career that she has crafted for herself. So uh, headline for The New York Times, Trump civil fraud trial uh, coming to an end. Trump delivers the final words. In his closing argument uh, in the fraud trial just moments ago, I quote now from the New York Times, uh, Trump's months long, months long fraud trial draws to an end. Here is the latest. Donald J. Trump on Thursday delivered abrupt remarks in his own defense on the final day of his civil fraud trial in Manhattan, attacking the New York attorney general who brought the case and insulting the judge to his face and declaring himself an innocent man. Mr. Trump's remarks were chaotic and emotional and lasted only minutes, during which he impugned the attorney general, Letitia James, a Democrat, saying that she hates Trump and uses Trump to get elected. That's a quote. He also took aim at the judge, remarking to the judge, to his face, you have your own agenda. I certainly understand that. He added as the judge stared stonily at him, you can't listen for more than one minute. This is Trump talk to the judge. You can't listen for more than one minute. The judge jumped in immediately and instructed the president's lawyers to control your client. Donald Trump continued, nonetheless, until the lunch break. That from, with a little Tabitha's commentary, that from the New York Times. Uh, Dad, I don't know what to say, but your thoughts about that breaking news that Trump spoke today. And you, you recall that a week or so ago when the, his lawyers ask or raise the issue that he might say a few words before this trial closed the, ju- the judge made it abundantly clear if he speaks you can't attack the attorney general you can't attack me you can't attack my staff and that's exactly what he just did moments ago so that.
2: Yeah, an insult-filled rant is not exactly a surprise to me (laughs) or anybody from Donald Trump. I mean, you know, the guy—it's so interesting to me that he gets a zillion chances. Like, you cannot do that. Everyone knows, all of us know full well that he's going to do that. That civil uh, fraud trial, of course, uh, is based on the concept that he overvalued his properties in order to get those uh, fair you know, favorable terms, uh, from, from banks. And of course, you know, listen, you know, if he loses this massive, massive multi hundred million dollar fine that's, uh, that he's facing could be banned from real estate, uh, the industry as a whole for life, uh, couldn't serve i think as a director of any corporation well also there's some very big risks here but yeah there's again nothing in that trial has surprised me and especially when judges warn him not to do something i think pretty consistently he goes ahead and does it so i'm really not surprised on that front at all
0: yeah on- only a white guy can get away with that to tell the judge <laughs> that, that yep. you can't listen for more than a minute you got your own agenda here and all the judge says is Please control your client. If that had been a Negro telling the judge to his face, you can't listen for more than a minute. You got your own agenda here. They would have ran that Negro out of that courtroom and all that Donald Trump gets is, please control your client. And then he continued, continued. Until the lunch yeah. break. So to your point, all the chances that he gets, don't get me started on that. Let me just ask you, though, nice segue here. I've seen uh, and followed you, of course, I've seen a number of your critiques, legitimate uh, and, and, and informed, given the role that you've played in the media for decades now. How do you read the way the media has struggled? That's my word, not yours. The media has struggled or just rolled over, as it were, in covering Donald Trump heretofore and how you expect they're going to do a better job to the extent they can or will covering him forward between now and November.
2: Yeah. You know, I think rolled over is a really good phrase and and probably a couple of years ago, I would have been like, yeah, struggled is a good word. But you know, I think when people refuse to do any kind of analysis of their failures and their mistakes, um, then it really is a matter of rolling over because it means it's more intentional than, you know, than the struggle that I probably originally gave the media credit for, uh, for doing, you know, so, I don't I don't see any growth. I don't see any learning. I don't see any ability to say, hey, how do you cover a person who is newsworthy, so deserves to be covered, but doesn't necessarily deserve to have a live hot mic handed to him? Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily deserve to have an entire town hall centered around. Again, we know what he's going to do. Uh, is if, if people do not know that, then they really need to remove themselves from the business, because I think everybody else really is well aware of how it's going to go. And the CIA, uh, CIA, yeah. <laughs> that's Freudian, CNN, debacle yeah. of having him in that <laughs> town hall, right? Was yeah. it, it went exactly as everyone predicted. Mm-hmm. It was just a complete raging hot mess. And of course, you can't even argue like, well, there's just tons of good information that comes out, because usually there's not. It, it's mixed in with lies and disinformation and misinformation. So it's not necessarily valuable, but you do have to come up with a way to cover him, get in, get information, and yet not hand him alive, Mike. And I've really not seen anybody uh, come up with a strategy to do that well. And I don't have any great hopes, frankly. I wish this weren't the case, but I just haven't seen anything where people are doing a lot of self-analysis, like, wow, how do we do this better? Yeah. So oh, I don't I I don't I'm not feeling very optimistic about good coverage to be honest.
0: And 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 what's your obviously you have an indictment. What 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 is your indictment of the of, of the way that this happens perennially and I I by this I mean the way that we have not learned lessons from the first time around like i mean mean, these these are news organizations who ought to know better and i can just leave it at that and let you respond but but what's what's your sense of why my my grandmother big mama put it this way baby when you know better you ought to do better when you know better you ought to do better so they know better so i'm not Mm -hmm. not even asking this why aren't they doing better
2: Ah, i'm gonna argue we're measuring the wrong thing. Here's what they know. Money. They know ratings. They know buzz. They know, right. So this idea of we're doing something that is not good journalism. I think that falls down to like number 20 thing on the list. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's first. It's, you know, how will we do ratings? Are we getting buzz? Are people talking about it? Is it traveling on social? Did he say something crazy? Can we take that chunk and then push it forward? And then it drives the news for the next day or two, right? Those are all really important elements of how those stories flow. It's not just looking back and saying, are we proud of ourselves for doing this? Are we not proud of ourselves? It really, I I think it's naive to think that they think that way. They really don't. It is a money question. I hate to say, I love journalism so much. So. Uh, But I I fully understand when people are like, listen, at the end of the day, this has got to make money. And here's a person who can drive eyeballs and can drive conversation and people will hate watch as much as they'll love watch. And we can really mobilize these you know, terrible things that he does for certain populations that are watching and Mm -hmm. amazing things that he's doing for other populations. So I think the question about journalism is honestly like way down on the list.
0: Yeah. As you were talking, I'm thinking, um, and this is this is this is uh, my sense of it, that all of our systems have bowed down to Donald Trump. All of our systems uh, genuflect in the face of Donald Trump. Our political system certainly does that. Republicans lining up all these sycophants. Our, 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 our media does that. That's what Soledad was just talking about it. The judicial system does that. Uh, today you can diss a judge to his face, and all the judge says is, "Control your client." Everybody handles this guy with kid gloves. We all sort of bow down, and that's an indictment, I think, of all of our systems—from the from the judicial system, as I said, to our to our to our corporate media, um, to our political system. Um, it, it is it's it's unnerving, uh, for lack of a better word, to just watch this genuflection. Uh, in real time. I, I digress on that. More with Soledad O'Brien when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love. love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of, expand inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Soledad O'Brien, what is it like to uh, run Soledad Productions and to be able to address all of these critical issues to shed light on untold stories and sort of challenge these societal norms through your storytelling from this vantage point versus uh, a network or a corporate standpoint, which you've done at a number of different places over your over your, over your your career?
2: Well, when you started, I liked the way you made it sound like it was very intentional and very organized and very <laughs> strategic. I was like, oh, oh, right, right. Yes, yes, Tavis, it was. Uh, some of the time we really just didn't know what we were doing, but I did have a sense of what I didn't want to do. You know, at the end of the day, you still need clients, you need customers, right? We're we're always looking for uh, platforms, and so it's not like you just go out there and you just do what you want and sit out there wherever you want. I mean, CBS has been a fantastic partner for us on our documentary about affirmative action. HBO was our partner when we did a Black and Missing uh, series. Uh, you know, we did a, a really great doc uh, that um, of Rosa Parks, you know. So we, we always get these partners, and that's obviously essential. But I think what it really does do allows you to. I mean, you know this because, in a lot of ways, you know, when you're self-employed, you get to sit down and say, "Where do I want to spend my time and my energy, and where is my my best and highest use of of me?" <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I, I think you know, I, I think that's always a really nice question. I remember when I was working at CNN, uh, I was sent to cover. An anniversary of uh, the killing of John Binet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being in a line with maybe 90 other reporters and just thinking like, why am I here? I'm not sure I have anything to add value. We're kept so far from the scene. Like we're just doing live shots. We're not actually reporting. Not adding value. And, and it seems like a, a little bit of a, a waste of time, frankly. Um, and so I really vowed to myself after that that I wanted to be on stories where me showing up really meant that I could, you know, add some value for the audience. Mm-hmm. And I, I've tried to really do that. And, you know, sometimes I feel like, hey, if I weren't there, would this question be asked? If I were not there, would it be framed this way? If I, you know, weren't here, you know, would, would everybody else push back? And I, I you know, I, 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 as you get older, too, as you well mm-hmm. know, you get what you're willing to do and what you're willing to not do. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of been nice as well.
0: Yep. Um. It may not have been planned. Uh, and in many respects, uh, parts of my career weren't planned either. But I have found, and I'm curious to get your take, that there is a particular, how might I put it, there's a particular freedom that comes along with doing uh, the work and witness that you think you were called to do in the way that you know it needs to be done.
2: Yeah, for sure, for sure. There's there's a freedom when you feel like you're, I mean, I think this is with every career, right? When you feel like I am in the place I'm supposed to be, mm-hmm. there's a certain sense of of calm and like freedom and sense of even if you're working really hard, Mm -hmm. you just feel like you're in the right place. And it's very frustrating to toil away when you're pretty sure you're in the wrong place and Mm -hmm. you're not doing the things that actually are good for you to be doing or that you care deeply about. So I think that's for every career. Life and at some point say, you know, what am I supposed to be doing here? Why was I put on the planet? What mm-hmm. are my my skills and my abilities and my my gifts? Frankly, that mm-hmm. I can add value in some way that maybe somebody else can.
0: In our remaining moments with Sodiad O'Brien, um, just about three or four minutes left, when we come forward, I I, I want to ask her. We were just talking a moment ago. Um, we offered our both we both offered our assessment, our indictment, if you will, of the of the corporate mainstream media as currently structured. But I know there are always young people listening uh, and those parents who have young people who are in school right now, like the two boys she has on the way to college, uh, who are interested in this media world. Uh, And while I don't want to cast dispersion or indict all of our colleagues in the business across the board, that would not be fair. There are a lot of good journalists out there. I am curious as to what Soledad, given the career that she has fashioned, believes is missing What is missing in the kinds of journalists that we need in the months and years ahead? We'll get our take on that as a veteran these days. You're listening, and I'm glad about it, to Soledad O'Brien on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now got about 3 minutes left with that, O'Brien so that I recall uh, two things vividly the first time some young person called me Mr Smiley uh, <laughs> and, and the first time somebody introduced me on the show as a veteran broadcast uh, media oh, personality oh. Uh, uh, I hate to break it to you but we're veterans these days uh, oh. and because you <laughs> I hear the pains. I hear the angst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we are veterans, I get to ask you questions like the following. Uh, You've been around long enough now to see what's right, what's wrong, what's working, what doesn't work. I I, I close by asking you today um, when it comes to journalism, what it is you see that is missing that these young journalists of color particularly can and ought be bringing to the table.
2: And so many of them are. I have to tell you, I'm always amazed and encouraged by young journalists because I think that they understand that their job is to actually bring some kind of sense of understanding to the audience, right? It's about educating people. I don't hate poor people. I don't hate people of color. I don't hate anybody. I'm trying to understand issues. And I think when journalists sort of feel like, well, these people are more valuable than those people, you start getting into trouble. And I see that in older journalists, frankly, far more than I see it in young journalists. So I'm very encouraged by young journalists and the opportunities that lie ahead for them.
0: Yep. And what's the future of Data Productions?
2: Listen, uh, you, as you pointed out, we're very organized and strategic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we continue to work on projects that we love. We're looking at... Um, Obviously, uh, women's right to choose right now in a project. We're going to do a follow up to our documentary about affirmative action, looking at the next layer of attack on DEI. So we're just busy. We're a very very tiny company, but we keep trying to work on things. Our our podcast about the assassination of JFK, who killed JFK, is a number one podcast in the country Mm -hmm. right now. So that's been very exciting. So we just. You know, we're very small but mighty is how we like to think about ourselves. There
0: you go. Uh, And finally, uh, let's close where we began, talking about the affirmative action document you tell folks gang where they can see and download that brilliant piece of work.
2: Yeah, you absolutely uh, can take a look at that documentary on um, the uh, CBS News, um, uh, their uh, their streaming service. It's a really great way to catch it, and we'd be very excited if everyone gets a chance to look at it there.
0: Her name is Soledad O'Brien. Um, she's doing some wonderful work, um, in cons- uh, consistent with uh, all that she's done in the decades Thank prior you. to. Soledad, good to have you on. I'm, I'm As we say, I'm rooting for everybody black. That includes you, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you're doing what you want to do and doing it in a way that uh, is uh, that's full of Integrity. So congratulations on all Thanks. the great work you're doing and good to have you on this program.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Take care, of Soledad. Uh, that's our program for today. Tomorrow, Friday. Is it Friday already, Miles? Friday, tomorrow. So tomorrow, the best of Tab is Smiley, in case you missed some uh, amazing conversations this week, and There were plenty to choose from. Miles and I have to always, uh, on Thursday, figure out what are we What's our best of tomorrow's? So we got a lot to choose from this week. So tomorrow, great show uh, on that. Um, if you are in Los Angeles, if you're in L.A., uh, we heard across the country. But if you're in L.A., uh, Friday morning, 1030 a.m. at the top of Kenneth Hahn Park, our big announcement, uh, our historic announcement about this major Climate Justice campaign that we're rolling out tomorrow with the mayor and Holly Mitchell and others. Um, so it should be a great gathering tomorrow at 10:30 a.m. at the top of Kennehan Park at the MLK Memorial Tree Grove. That's tomorrow once again at 10:30 a.m. If you are in the Los Angeles area.